the world is changing at an exponential rate. Some of us keep ourselves updated with what's going on in the realms of finance, nutrition, workout, and world news. But when was the last time you looked at some latest research when it comes to children? Now, I know that it definitely helps when you're a parent, but if you're not, you are going to be a parent one day. And raising a child can sometimes be a bit complex because it's not very clear what's really going on in the child's mind. And I have got someone on the show today who knows a lot of what's really going on. And this can help all the adults to help their kids reach their true potential. My guest on the show today is a clinical psychologist. He's an author, a speaker. He's designed programs around the world. Andrew Fuller, welcome to the show. CJ, it's wonderful to be with you. Hello. Hello. It's a pleasure to have you on today's podcast. I've, you know, we've been exchanging so many emails trying to get this, and I'm so grateful that we finally got this together. Now, <laughs> Andrew, everyone who is doing something meaningful around the world always has an interesting backstory. So give me your backstory. Sure. I started out my career in psychiatric crisis teams. So I'd be on bridges and in seed situations with people who were in the gloomiest moments of their lives. And I got interested in how do you stop people getting to that point, really? And that really has been the, the hallmark of my career. How do you work with people to create futures that they can fall in love with? So that basically, rather than ending up feeling despairing and that life is not worth living, that you, you feel that life is, is full of possibility. And so as, as that, obviously at that stage, I was working with adults, but to prevent that sort of outcome, you start working then, then with parents and then with teenagers and then with children. And so progressively, you get a bit younger as you go through it. And so that's really the, the history of, uh, of mm -hmm. my career. Okay, that sounds interesting. It's a long way for you to come all the way, uh, starting from where you did. And I'm glad that we're having this conversation. Now, I feel that, you know, with nature has made life very simple, especially for the men, because our biology operates on a very simple way, which translates into our personalities being quite straightforward. But then we have two other different groups. One is women, whose biology is a bit complex, which results in complex set of emotions, behaviors, and understanding them can be a challenge. And the next group are children, whose biology seems simple, but their actions sometimes could be misunderstood, misinterpreted, and a lot more. Now, you have written a book which coined the term tricky behavior. So tell me, what is tricky behavior and why do some or most of the kids have some version of this? <laughs> well, I guess one of the things that children are good at is surviving. And one of, the, I mean, where, as far as I know, really the only uh, animal or, or creature on the planet that is born needing care. And so 
that means that human babies need to be pretty clued in to how do you get the nourishment and support that you need to grow. And of course, humans have been very successful across the planet, so they have been good at it. And one of the things they're good at is getting their parents' attention. And they will get their attention at any cost. So basically, if they can get it in a positive way, they will certainly do that. But if that's not going to work, they're quite happy to really try to get it in negative ways, squabbling, fighting, arguing. arguing. And mm. of course, just to, just to survive, humans have had to have enormous amounts of willpower, really. And if so you see this, particularly in um, three and four-year-olds, where they basically, I don't want to, I'm not going to do it, you know, I'll do it my way, I do it myself. That sort of wonderful, feisty, difficult time of life, because, of course, it's very hard to get a three- or four-year-old to agree to almost anything. Mm -hmm. And you can almost tear your hair out as a parent. But in a very powerful way, what they're, what they're doing is developing that skill is going to set them up for success in their lives. And so tricky kids or tricky kids who behave in tricky ways aren't, uh, they're difficult to parent, but they're often very clever young people because they've worked out a way to really have their parents around their fingers, you know, so in a way they've kind of, they, some of them run the family. And mm -hmm. um, they're so good at it that in some ways you feel like you're not even sometimes aware of what's happening. And I suppose the other kind of bizarre thing that can happen in families is that when you hang around and spend a lot of time with a, uh, a kid who's behaving in a tricky way, adults can start behaving in tricky ways too. Oh, wow. So it works both ways. Children have the power to influence adults as well. Interesting. Yeah. So one of the things that I guess is important to say is that in a family, we all grow up, really. So whether you're the parent or the child, you're still growing up. And most families are like a debating team. And so, in fact, having some arguments and some differences of opinion is healthy. And so stereotypically, this debating team has two teams in the family. One team want things to stay the same, and the other team want things to change. The team that want things to stay the same say, you know, you're not old enough, uh, it's a school night, all that kind of stuff. Whereas the team that want things to change, say, I want more freedom, I want more pocket money, I want to go out, I want to do this, I want to play this computer game, it's my right. And the way a family has that debate between change and not change is the way that a family grows up. And so if there's no conflict at all, it's very difficult for people to grow in a family. So often while we think about arguments is always bad. In fact, sometimes they're very important for us. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I've never thought of it this way. Um, when, we, when we talk about parenting and the younger um, ages, one of the things that comes to mind is that for most of, at least for most adults, we're we use a lot of our conscious mind, right? But the conscious mind represents a small percent, it consumes a lot of energy, but it also 
uh, represents a very small percent of the total activity, which is probably less than 10%. And 90% of the activity that's going on is in the subconscious mind. Now, some researchers say that it's up till the age of seven where our subconscious mind is still navigating through the world, learning things, making beliefs, um, understanding this could be from your parents, from your neighbors, from your uncles. And most parents just might not know that. And especially in the time when things get more difficult, and especially if it's your first child, then there is a lot of other stressors going on. And now you have a big responsibility. So how does a parent navigate through those very initial years of a child's life? Is there some things that are a must to do or things that they shouldn't do at all? So I've done a lot of research on having good outcomes for children. And clearly there are three big factors that play a role. I mean, we can talk about the unconscious, if you like, a little bit later. It's a fascinating area. But um, in terms of what really sets families up for success, it's that when it's, it's called the CPR of well-being. So when we connect with one another, mm-hmm. and so we have times of linkage, and we can go through some of the ways we do that. When we protect sure. one another, so when we feel safe with one another, and when we are respectful of one another, then people thrive. And so now, so connect, protect, and respect are the three big factors that promote good outcomes. So you want to have a good relationship with your children and with yourself. You want to also have home as a safe place to be for everybody as much as you can. And as much as possible, you want to build respectful relationships in the home so that everybody learns that, you know, if you treat other people well, generally you'll do well as, as well. And so that's important. And so starting to practice that. So the parents really set the culture of the household. And so in a healthy family, the children basically look at the parents and for what to do. How do we act here? And setting that culture as a positive place makes a gigantic difference to everyone's happiness. And so we, we can talk a bit about how we go about that. But just that CPR of well-being is worth thinking about. Yes, please. If you, if you don't mind, we should talk about it because I think it's very crucial for anyone who's listening, especially the parents, thank, to understand this. C- yes, thank you, CJ. So um, the first thing I guess to say is... When you start a family, you, you yourselves come from different families, and that's like coming from different tribes with different rules and different expectations. And so sometimes it's important not to be dishonouring of the past, but to really think about what sort of family you want to have and how you want to raise your children. Because I think today's parents have many more choices than their parents had and remarkably more choices than their grandparents had. And so rather than necessarily just being honourable of the past, it's important to think about what today's young people need to succeed in the modern world. Now, in terms of processing information in brains there are many pathways and we might come back to learning strengths and talk about about that today but in terms of emotions 
there are two main pathways. The first one is driven by a part of the brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala, when it's activated, kicks off a response of fear, of stress and pain. And so that's one pathway. The second pathway involves your hypothalamus and your pituitary gland that are releasing the hormone oxytocin. Now, oxytocin is the hormone of love, the hormone of connection, the hormone of trust, the hormone of belonging, the hormone of great friendship. And so one of the things as a parent that you need to think about is do you want to be a parent of the amygdala or a parent of oxytocin. Now, obviously, some of us grew up in families where we there was a family of the amygdala. You know, if you don't get this done, there'll be trouble or wait till your father gets home or whatever it might have been. And so it's an important consideration to think about how you might make that shift because a culture in which people feel supported and they feel like they belong is much more likely to result in really successful kids who are happy, who make good contributions in the world, than fearful, resentful young people who are sort of told what to do. If I give you one just brief example, probably even five years ago, teenagers still responded reasonably okay to pep talks you know come on you can do it you know it's really important mm -hmm. study hard all that kind of stuff these days they don't they've yeah. moved beyond that they're, they're not convinced by that one iota they're not going to believe it so there's no point giving them pep talks and come on you can do it because they're just over that and so it no longer works so the world has changed and young people have changed with it quite dramatically in the last five years so what works now? What works now is love and support. So it's a really interesting thing to think about. How do you then? So in a way, it's, you know, whereas sometimes in past generations, it was sort of we need to help kids toughen up so they deal with the real world. Yep. That doesn't work with these young people. They need to feel supported. They need to feel that you've got their back, that you really think they're wonderful. Because the world, I think, by, by and large, is a harsher place to grow up in now. I mean, it's more fearful due to COVID. But even without COVID, we still spend a lot of time emphasising success at school in more demanding ways than we ever did before. And generally speaking, what, what young children learn at school is what they would have learned many years later a generation ago. So we've compressed education, we reduce play, and we often make our kids very anxious. And so if home is also anxious, that's terrifying for young people. So we need to think about how we really rethink schools, but we need to make sure that home is a safe place to be where the people who are there love you to bits and think you're wonderful and know how smart you truly are. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's um, for anyone who's listening, I would definitely advise you to take notes because this information is gold. Thank you, Andrew. Now, you also use a term called neurodiversity. And honestly, after reading your work, it was like one of the first times I heard this word by itself. Can you tell us why, what neurodiversity is and why should parents take it seriously? 
Sure, that's that's a great question, CJ. So, so twenty twenty was a dreadful year across the world, but in science, it was a great year because people had the time to stop and collaborate. And one of the things that it meant was that we collaborated around how understanding of how brains learn. And one of the real areas that we got interested in was how brains process information. So up until that time, we were largely concerned with where in the brain particular functions occur. And then the whole thing changed. And so basically now we're interested in how does your brain process information? Now, there's a process called myelination. But myelin sheathing is a white brain material that wraps itself around the axons and the neurons of your brain, and it speeds up thinking. It's a little bit like the protective coating around an electricity cord, so mm -hmm. electrical cord. And so now what we know is that 60% of your brain is myelinated, which means that it processes particular types of information really fast. But of course, 40% is not. But what we didn't know even really two years ago was that the pattern of myelination in each brain is vastly different. And so, CJ, you will process information, some, some of that information you'll process much faster than I could. And there'll be other sorts of information that I process faster than you. So yeah. if we bother to spend our time comparing ourselves with one another, that would be a complete waste of time. We'll go both get anxious because CJ is so much better than this. And I should be as good as CJ. And, I, you know, mm -hmm. I'm really worried that I'm not as good as CJ. And so really the job is not so much to think about and are we smart in the same way. It's basically the message that we want to give children is here everyone gets smart. Now, we know that young people are smarter than previous generations, substantially so. It's measurable on, on psychometric testing. So we know that, but we also know that there's a greater diversity of ways of being smart. So some people are really good at thinking in pictures or spatial reasoning, whereas other people are really good with numbers. Other people are really good with language and words or planning and sequencing. And so... The idea behind this isn't that you basically find what your learning strength is and then just do that. It's more about how you use what you're already strong at to lift other areas. So, for example, if CJ, if you were, um, let's let's make, I'll just make a guess so it's not yeah. about you personally, but let's say you're a real people person, you really... Mm -hmm read people well and you were very interested in humans but you weren't a particularly numbers sort of person right in fact numbers you made more... a good guess <laughs> and so i start talking about numbers and you want to fall asleep right so then i re i realize that about you if i'm your parent and i go okay let's talk about how numbers apply to people so i might mm -hmm. say to you cj what what percentage of people do you think have dark hair as opposed to blonde hair? What percentage of people are over this particular height? Or what percentage basically have that type of background versus that type of background? Or how long do you think if you if you spread out your arms, is the length of your wing, if your arm span, is that the same as your height? Have a look at that. And so you're starting to use different ways of thinking about numbers that relate to people. 
And suddenly, a child who's completely disinterested in numbers is suddenly interested because, of course, it relates to people. Ah, so this is this is actually useful to think about this. And so you start to then get more motivation and enthusiasm and also a sense that I can do this among children. So the idea is that we all have different brains. We are all smart in different ways. So our job is to identify that in our children and then to help them to become smart in their way and to minimise the comparisons between people. That's true at school, but it's also between brothers and sisters and brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters in a family. Mm -hmm. I think nowadays there is another challenge to this equation where if parents uh, kind of make control of the situation and they don't allow for a lot of comparisons and they understand neurodiversity and things like that, but then you have social media. And right. we know that social media can have a deep impact on all humans, whether it's a child or an adult. Now, That's right. do you need strategies for instance to minimize the effects of social media and targeted algorithms and things like that? Yes, I'll just say a little bit more about neurodiversity before I answer sure. that if it's okay, CJ. So I set up a website called mylearningstrengths.com. And if you go on that website, you'll see a great photo of me. And then you can, because I paid a lot of money to look that good. And I hope you, <laughs> you, hope you appreciate it. <laughs> and then you can do an analysis of your learning strengths. You could do this as an adult if you'd like. Mm -hmm. And you'll get a letter from me that says, congratulations, CJ. You're really good at this and this. But if you want to better another area, here's a way of doing it. And the reason I did that was because I think that very few people get to hear from an adult who's neither their teacher nor their parent about something they're good at. And in the short period of time that it's been available, 27,000 young people around the world have done it. And I get these wonderful emails saying things like, can you tell my teacher she doesn't know I'm smart? Can you tell my mum she doesn't think I'm clever? And it's really heartwarming Thing to think about. There is a, a full report you can pay $20 for, but that basic letter is free. And it's worth doing for yourself and then maybe doing it for your children as well. So social media is toxic in some dreadful ways, but the way that it's most dreadful is that it builds envy into our lives. And so basically what social media does, it makes me compare myself with everybody else. So CJ's highlights package of his great holiday looks way, way better than my highlights package of my holiday. And so that's not fair. I should basically have a holiday like CJ's had. And basically that's, you know, I'm, why haven't I got that kind of holiday? And that's not fair. And I can feel glum about it and so on. And so one of the critical things to do is to help people overcome envy because social media in builds envy in our world and envy can waste your life. I see people in my therapy room who've spent their lives trying to prove something to somebody else, living up to family members or expectations or trying to basically live up to somebody else's standards rather than enjoying their own life. And the problem is that you end up basically wasting your life focusing on trying to impress somebody else rather than do what you want to do.
And so it's very, very important to try to teach children that comparisons are useless. It's about you being smart in your way, not being smart in the way that somebody else is smart, not having the sort of holiday you want, not trying to have a holiday which is as good as somebody else's. And so that's the first part of, of it. Now, of course, computer games particularly are so brilliantly designed that they get a surge in dopamine, which is a neurochemical that gives us motivation. And so we know that because there's a surge in Fortnite and Call of Duty and whatever games uh, young people are playing, that once the game is finished, they are depleted in dopamine, which means they can't really get their motivation to do anything else, which is why in a family it's always wise to say, do the study or do the reading, do the hard stuff, and then you can play the computer games. Because if you, if you allow them to play the computer games before they've done the hard stuff, they will never do it, ever. The other thing, just the third thing perhaps to say before seeing if there are any questions about this, CJ, is that when you go into a room where a young person is playing a computer game, the other thing that you need to think about is that they are in a trance. They are absolutely enchanted and entranced by the game. And so imagine, for example, if you were listening to something really restful and you're in a calm, meditative state, and I charge the room and say, turn that off and go and do this, and you know, you'd basically jump and basically probably argue with me. And mm -hmm. so realizing that children are the same, that they're in this trance state and you need to gently kind of bring them out of that trance state. There's no point going in, you know, basically and, you know, yelling and dem demonstrating in sort of as emotional ways. It's much more powerful to go in, probably sit beside them for a moment, say, how's the game going? We need to wind it up in a minute, but, you know, that's, we can play it again later. And, they still won't like it, of course, because they are addicted to the game. They love it. But at the same time, it's easier for parents that way. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. When you were talking about uh, this comparison thing, one of the I went back in time for a bit because when I was growing up, I was um, as a kid, I was obese and I got bullied at school for the longest period of time. And my whole mission or my whole um, agenda to prove to the world was that. Um, you know, I'm not, um, you know, I can be fit like others and things like that. And that translated into a very later stage in my life where I would do all these fitness events and I would like go through all these crazy diets and, um, you know, just kind of like push myself up uh, till the limits of everything. But at the end of the, I didn't realize why I was doing that until I did some deep work and, you know, did some meditation sessions, some deep work, some reading. And I realized that a lot of the way I show up in the world right now where everything is mostly about competition and mostly about like proving others wrong or, you know, having just accelerating so much in this physical domain is powered by all those stressors that I had as a kid. So thank you for sharing that. I could relate my own story to it. But I'm sorry that um, you were bullied. That's the other awful. thing that you, yeah, it's funny that we speak about bulliness, but I had to go to a school to get bullied. But these days, 
kids don't even have to go to a school to get bullied because cyberbullying <laughs> is such a big thing. Now, how serious is cyberbullying? And because now when I think about it, and I feel like if someone's just saying something not so good on the internet, is just delete that person and just you know move on with my life. But obviously, I am nearly thirty now. My prefrontal cortex has developed a lot. I can initiate this logical thinking, not go through the you know the emotional centers of the brain, like you said, the amygdala. But we know that kids don't even develop their prefrontal cortex until they're 24, 25. And a lot of the thought pattern that goes in comes in from the emotional center. So tell me about cyberbullying. Do you see this a lot in your practices? Uh, are a lot of children around the world affected by this? Well, they are and they're not in a funny kind of way. So basically, cyberbullying is a very difficult thing. So let's say you're in a chat group or you're online and somebody makes a comment. What is so traumatizing about cyberbullying is that it's a bit like if you've ever had a sore tooth and you say to yourself, what I must do is keep my tongue away from that tooth. And if you've ever had a sore tooth, you'll know how hopeless that is because your tongue almost seemingly finds that tooth and sort of feels it, oh, oh, ouch, right? Yeah. The same occurs with cyberbullying because <clears throat> why do you think I, I shouldn't, I should stay away from this and not basically pay any attention to it? What happens is that you keep going back and checking, has anybody liked that comment? Has anyone commented more? And so what mm -hmm. cyberbullying does, it traumatizes and then re-traumatizes people. And so we have to have something that helps young people to protect. And I'll talk about what that is in a moment. But the other part is that in some ways, it's still the face-to-face -face bullying that's the most hurtful. Because when people that you like and trust turn on you, and I'm sorry that happened to you, CJ, that's what's really hurtful, I think. And that's so difficult. And that's because we live in a culture that wants to rank and compare children. If I can help young people to realize you're smart in your way and you're smart in a different way and differences are fine, that's a very different world from where do you sit in relation to everybody else. So generally what happens is people who bully do so to try to make themselves feel better, go further up the, the chain, the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I set up in schools is what I call cyber doctors. And the cyber doctors are a group of students. So let's say, CJ, you are cyber bullied in school. You might go to this group who have some expertise in, they've probably got a code of conduct for the school in terms of cyber citizenship, but they also know about how to prevent cyber bullying. So let's say I went to that group and so, and this happens in schools. So sometimes a student will go to that group and say, last night I was on a chat room with CJ and I said something to him, which I think was actually hurt his feelings. And I really feel bad about it. And they will help me and coach me in fixing it up. Or if it was you going to the cyber doctors and saying, look, 
Andrew has basically been pretty uh, bullying of me online, what the cyber doctors will do is go on to whatever chat room it is and make comments not negatively about the bully, but supporting the victim and saying, look, you know, CJ's a great guy. What are you, you know, what are you carrying on about? You know, it's mm -hmm. okay that he's perhaps is a bit weightier. That's all right. It's not a big issue. Yeah. What, you know, get over it. Um, and that's really important, I think, to have a group of people who back you up at those difficult times, because then that helps you to kind of practice that what, what I do is I train young people who are bullied to do verbal self-defense, where they learn to say some things back to kids not they're not bullying the other kids but they're sometimes using humor or some line to deflect that can you give us an example of that perhaps like if someone is being bullied what can uh it be like one of those things that they can say that doesn't person but actually neutralizes the situation probably makes them laugh yeah so um <laughs> So you might, um, it depends on the age of the child, obviously, mm -hmm. but let's say, let's say you're a teenager and somebody's calling you fat. Mm -hmm. You might say, yes, but I've got the personality of a really sexy beast. Right? Mm -hmm. Got it. <laughs> the idea. That would definitely you know, diffuse the situation. That's right. And the kids might go, no, you don't. <laughs> but, but that changes the conversation. You see what yeah. I mean? Or, yeah. 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 Or, or are you from the fat police? What's what's going on here? Why why are you <laughs> why why do you think you're the policemen of what shape bodies there are? I like the way you put um, all these terms, the cyber doctor and all of these. They're very cool, very cool, and <laughs> you know they just now I'm uh, in all um, in all disclosure. I might use it with some people, so I'll speed it from you for some time. <laughs> good, good. You're you also have come up with. Other acronyms. Now, one of them is resolve and holds. So, can you tell us what resolve is and when is the best time to use it? Thank you. That's a, a great question, CJ. And um, so, resolve came out of, as I said, my career started on bridges with people in, in difficult situations. And I started to think, how do I help people to resolve conflict? And mm -hmm. so over 35 years, I worked with families and developed up a method of resolving uh, conflict called RESOLVE. So it's an acronym. So the first part is to respond with respect. So rather than waiting as a parent until you've got a head of steam and you're really angry, it's being important just to respond with respect because you want to build a culture in a family that's respectful. Now, the first thing that I say to parents in tricky behaviours is that you don't have to accept every argument you're invited to. Your children will invite you into a lot of arguments, and some of them you don't need to show up for. There are some arguments you go, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way, CG. That's, very, that's, very, that's a great shame. And then you wander off and do something else. So some parents feel like they have to deal with every issue, and you don't. So the other part then is to sometimes work out what your core issues are, the really important things that you think are worth battling over. And then the, the E in resolve is engage. And that basically is not waiting until um, 
you know, sometimes one of the, the errors that parents make is they think, oh, well, it'll, it'll change, it, it'll blow over. And I think there are times when we need to be front-footed with children and go, what's wrong? What's going on for you? And asking them actively about what they might be feeling angry or upset about or frustrated about so that we can solve it. So I say trying to have a family policy of raising issues when they're fresh and small, not when they're big and stinky and kind of stale, is important. Then it's about seeking understanding. So it's basically trying to look up on beyond the behavior to what might be happening. So one of the things in families that we want to do is treat misbehavior as the abnormal state, not the normal state. We want to treat misbehavior as the abnormal state, not the normal state. So that means that basically... Um, when somebody's misbehaving, rather than using the word why, we use the word what. Now, why, of course, we'll still use that word, but when we use the word why a lot, it often becomes interrogative. So basically, I might say, why aren't you ready? Why didn't you do your homework? Why have you hit your sister? That kind of stuff. So it's, but it's far more powerful for parents to go, what's going on for you? You're not normally like this. You're normally a, a nice person. What's going on for you? I don't really understand this. Are you okay? What's happening for you? And then you might use the acronym HALTS. So you might say, are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you lonely? Are you tired? Are you stressed? What's going on for you? Now, even if you don't ask a child or a teenager that, just thinking it gives you a kinder, more considered response as a parent. And so. That's a very powerful way. So you're purposely relabeling misbehavior as a sign that there is something wrong. Right? Mm -hmm. What's going on for you? And then it's about uh, observing the waves of, of emotion, because, of course, that often happens. And then it's lowering the tone. Now, lowering the tone is really interesting, because here we need to use our understanding of brains to help us. So behind a, a child who's not behaving well is a brain that's not functioning well. And a brain that's not functioning well often has a neurochemical imbalance. And so there are four neurochemicals that we train parents about, two that we would generally like more of, dopamine and serotonin, and two that we would generally like less of, which is adrenaline and cortisol. Mm -hmm. And dopamine is the one that's associated with motivation. So if you've ever had a child who's low in motivation, they were also low in dopamine. So dopamine is increased by challenges, problem solving, quizzes, puzzles, humor, social interaction, but especially rhythmic repetitive movements, sports like handball, downball, volleyball, percussion, swimming, drumming, all of those rhythmic movements increase dopamine. Uh, adrenaline makes children what I call ratty, chatty, and scatty. By that I mean is they've got lots of words, but they're often running at a million yeah. miles. 
Um, often in families, we want to decrease adrenaline and repetitions and rituals. Make, so which part of the procedure don't you understand, CJ? I've got a whole lifetime to help. It's going to be eventually. It's going to be okay. We're going to get there eventually. And this is the way we do it in our family. I'm glad we've got that understood. So while adrenaline is being released, the other stress hormone is cortisol, which sometimes makes kids monosyllabic, hard to communicate with. And so we want to also bring that down. And that's brought down by safety, by oxytocin, by rituals, by also drinking more water. Some kids become quite dehydrated and become stressed through that. And also through having, well, basically just that sense of safety. Sometimes, you know, just trying to subdue the situation. The, the fourth one is serotonin, which is the most powerful antidepressant known to humankind. So this is the calm high. And it's basically increased by getting enough sleep, getting some exercise, but it's also increased by feedback, oxytocin, love. And what's toxic to serotonin is having too much caffeine in your diet. And teenagers sometimes have a lot of caffeine. And aspartame, which is the artificial sweetener found in all the zero, zero drinks. Then, of course, we've got the V, which is the V is value add and resolve. And that's asking your child, how can I help without assuming that you know the answer already? Lots of adults ask children how they can help, but then assume that they already know what the answer should be. So when you really ask a child how they how you can help and you listen, they'll tell you, and they'll tell you something that probably you're not expecting. Mm -hmm. The pattern of resolve is so important because the long-term aim is empower. The long-term aim is not for you to manage your children's behavior, but for them to learn how to manage their own behavior, because in life, that's what they're going to need to do. Very true. Um, I think, thank you firstly to explain this in such detail. And for everyone who's listening, this acronym can be a wonderful thing. If you just keep it in the back of your head, you don't have to practice so many times. So I definitely encourage you to go on Andrew's website and, um, you know, just listen to this podcast. We'll put it in the show notes and just keep telling, reminding yourself of it before you lose control. And some of the more interesting things also you mentioned was that sometimes parents think that they know it all. And we often see like a lot of helicopter parenting where, you know, parents are either very their children or just stepping into everything and not letting their children go through maybe emotions, maybe these points in their life where, you know, they're, um, when they fail and they don't let them realize that they fail, you know, they give them participation medals and things like that. Now, is that a good strategy? Or should you sometimes take a step back and let the kid experience what's really going on in the real world so that makes them even ready for what's going to come in the future? Parents know what to do. And the reason they know what to do is because they've helped their children to learn to walk. And so you need to use precisely the same strategies. So when your toddler was learning to walk, you didn't go around putting dangerous things in their pathway for them to learn how to avoid them and get hurt by them. What you did, nor did you basically clear every obstacle out of the way so they just had an empty room to try to walk in. You helped them 
supported them as they found their way around the couch and across to the cushion and to the chair and so on. And you probably were there in the background making sure they didn't fall too abruptly or hurt themselves too severely, but you didn't stop them exploring. And it's exactly the same principle now, whatever age they are, they still need to explore life. They still need you there as the backup, but they don't need you removing every obstacle in their pathway because that's how they learn that they're smart. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thank you for sharing that. For everyone who's listening again, one of those things that you should note. Now, Andrew, you've worked with so many schools and um, do you think a lot of this having concepts we know that are great for in and you know calm down the nervous system things like being of service having a purpose uh you know the importance of being in a community especially at this point caring about others and not being scared from you know your neighbor or the person on the street do you see that a lot of schools nowadays are shifting their perspective trying to teach kids these things yes i think it's really important again to realize that there are a set of skills that schools and home can both teach children that set themselves up for success. So in past generations, it was the school assignments and the exams that predicted results. But when we look at the research, actually the a specific assignment or a specific term's work doesn't really predict long-term success. What predicts learning success are a couple of there's six main skills. First one is knowing your learning strengths. The second one is knowing how to plan. So in a world that basically is reactive, knowing how to plan is a major advantage. The, the third one is learning how to concentrate. So anyone who's ever learned to play a musical instrument or drive a manual vehicle knows that concentration can be improved. It's a skill. We know the next one is memory. Now, the highest correlate between academic results and, is intelligence. And the highest correlate or relationship with intelligence is memory. So if you enhance your memory, and we know you can, mm -hmm. you get better results at school. Then, of course, it's about impulse control, learning that your first idea is not always your best idea. And finally, it's about being able to calm yourself down when you're upset or distressed. If you have those skills, success is pretty assured. If you don't have those skills, success is incredibly hard to attain. And um, do you think that a lot of schools are looking to teach those skills? I mean, I know I most of them, yes, but... Uh... I think uh, it's really just starting, to be honest with you, that I think it's something that hasn't really been the forefront of schools because they're focused on the academics and they've forgotten about skill development. So we live in a world where in some ways content is less relevant because of course you can download the content. It's the skills that you develop while you're at school that long-term are the most helpful things for success. And if you're listening to this and if you're a school teacher or in the education department, then 
take some steps to kind of like bring in these skills that Andrew has spoken about into the lives of the people that you're training with or teaching, that would be a great benefit for them. Now, Andrew, we've reached to the end of this podcast and, you know, time's flown by. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. My last question to you would be, if you had a time machine, let's say hypothetically, and if you can go back to the young Andrew Fuller, what is that one, two or three pieces of advice that you would give your younger self? Knowing all that you well, know right now. I was very, very lucky uh, in my life because uh, um, my father very early on said to me, never lose sight of your dreams. And I think that was a wonderful piece of advice because it, it encouraged me to not bother spending my time trying to be successful in ways that other people were successful. I was really focused on following my own dream of basically making a difference in the way that I could. And so in a way, I've been incredibly lucky to have had the support that I described in families myself. So um, I know psychologists are supposed to come from troubled families and have deep issues themselves. Um, yeah. But I'm thankfully not one of those. I'm actually able to say that, you know, I was very lucky in my family. So the advice would be just to believe in yourself and so follow that because I think when you do things that you're really passionate about, then you become really good at it. And when you become really good at it, you do your best at it. And when you do your best at it, so few people really do their best at things that you'll stand out. Amazing. That's a piece of advice. Thank you for sharing that with us. And if people want to get in touch with you, if people want to get to know more about you, now you've written so many books and you know, you've, you've been at the forefront of so many different programs. What's the best way to get in touch with you? So there's uh, two websites. There is um, my mylearningstrengths.com that I mentioned that we can go on. And as well as doing the analysis of your learning strengths, you, there are free downloadable papers for gifted children, procrastination, oppositional argumentative children, and kids with attention problems. Um, the andrewfuller.com.au, so www.andrewfuller.com.au, also has free downloadable papers on things like depression-proofing children, anxiety management, preparing for tests and exams. So there's a whole lot of ways that you could remain in contact, and it'd be great for you to do that. Please do. And on LinkedIn Amazing. as well. So everyone, you heard that right. We'll put in the show notes as well. And Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate all the work that you've been doing, all the difference that you've contributed to make in this whole field for so many years. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, CJ. It's been a total delight talking to you. I really appreciate the time. The pleasure Bye, is mine. All right, everybody. Now, this is CJ signing off from the Shift with CJ podcast. Everyone have a energetic day a week a month a year a lifetime ahead of you bye now your time and presence with us through this podcast is highly appreciated if you want to learn more then head over to our website www.shiftwithcj.com